0: Hello and welcome back to another exciting episode of the SLR Film New Podcast where Devin joins me today to talk about all kinds of stuff. We've got some new NLEs, we've got some old NLEs, we've got some random bits and pieces, even a few questions from you guys. But first, Devin, I know it's a Monday instead of a Sunday. What have you been up to today, man? You look like you've been working hard.
1: Uh, yeah, I haven't really had anything that resembles a day off yet. Um uh, lots of lots of post work. I'm back into doing a lot of After Effects stuff, a lot of crazy stuff with graphics and music and all kinds of stuff right after this. I've got a meeting on the phone, which will probably take like an hour or two, and then I'll probably work late into the night and wake up early tomorrow. And, uh, you know, but that's the freelancer's life. That's, you know, the life I chose. So I have no one to blame but myself. Oh, I do not. I mean,
0: <laughs> I do miss it a little bit because I miss having time where you know you just don't have anything lined up and you have a couple days off to do nothing to like but, play Fallout
1: Four. Uh, yeah, I know exactly.
0: But <laughs> at the same time. I am really happy that my paychecks are consistent, and I oh, yeah. go to work every single day. Even if some of that is boring meetings about production <laughs> that's coming up, I don't care. Or I meetings like...
1: about meetings. <laughs> yeah.
0: We're going to have to have a meeting about this particular meeting. Uh, let's create a subcommittee to determine what color we should make <laughs> that. Uh, uh, we'll work on that and get back it's to you. It's so
1: okay. true. And then and then you got to wait for people's uneducated opinions on how to cut, splice, or like somehow put something together and i somebody wrote an interesting piece of software i think where you put in like everyone's salaries and stuff like that and you can determine how much a meeting costs to see how much money you're wasting (laughs) like you enter in everyone's salaries and how long the meeting is and then it'll tell you how much that meeting costs
0: yeah i occasionally when my boss uh drags me in to do something i'll drop the uh dollar amount a minute i make into his lap and say hey man you want me to do this are you sure I could you know, that's a that's a little pretty penny there. Or yep. you, you step out of the bathroom and you're like, guess what that cost? Oh, <laughs> on the clock, yo, on the clock. You know, All there's right. an app
1: for that. There's an app where every time you go to the bathroom at work, you like start a timer and then it'll tell you how much you got paid to like poop over the month. Never poop on your <laughs> lunch break. Never no, poop on your lunch break. There's no reason to poop on your lunch break. Let's start the show.
0: All right. Uh with that in mind, I think it's time for the
1: news. Step on the, news. Step on the news. Time
0: for the news. First up, uh, everybody has a Linux friend. I have a Linux friend. Devin is the Linux friend. Uh, (laughs) We have lots of people in our lives. There are multiple editors, and my Linux friend, his name is actually Aaron, but he has been pushing on me for years to give Linux an actual full-fledged try, and my excuse for never bothering with it is, A, you know, I remember the days when 14 floppy disks later you would have uh, Red Hat installed on a computer, which is awful, and B... I don't have Adobe CC. Adobe CC is my main editing program for pretty much everything. I work in it all day long, and I don't think I could go without it. I know people that use OS X as their editing source, but there are a few Linux-based options, and he has pushed those on me. Sino Leary, Devin knows a little bit about this. Tell me, first of all, what is this product? And I know it's free, but is it free in a good way, or free as in you're going to have to make some sacrifices?
1: Uh, It's it's actually free in a good way i mean now it's kind of hard to maybe uh, justify the learning curve uh, for something like it because it does operate differently because it is designed in a way by programmers than necessarily like a big uh, you know, industry of editors or something like that. But I actually used it a very long time ago. Uh, this may or may not date me, but uh, when I was first learning editing, probably in high school. Early uh, released
0: in 2002, I believe. So
1: yeah, this this was probably close a few years after it got released. Uh, I was using it. I remember it came on a few... Linux distros, I think like Ubuntu Studio was one of them. I don't know if that's still around. But there was a few distros where I tried it, and I actually made one or two um, anime music videos way back in the day because that's how I learned to edit. But uh, it's, it, it had a crazy learning curve. It had a few limitations, I imagine. They've probably improved a lot of it since then. Uh, it, it's one of those, though, that when you compare it to maybe other free options, because after all, there's... Um, uh, DaVinci Resolve can do basic cutting. Uh, a lot yeah, of people but that's don't a really, consider that. That's Not a really
0: a, scaled down editing uh, format and workflow, isn't it? It,
1: uh, it? It's it's compatible with everything, and it has powerful color, which a lot of free basic editors don't have. I do find it kind of ridiculous that it has a Titanic music on the homepage. page. I don't yeah, know if you can hear, hear that. It's, it's a little crazy. But um, it looks like they've added a lot, and they've made a lot of improvements. Uh, While I haven't used it in quite a long time, uh, I always remember it having kind of an impressive number of effects. There was no limitations on how many tracks you could have. Uh, Now, keep in mind, this is back when I was comparing it to things like um, uh, the Maginex offerings. Maginex used to have some software that would go toe-to-toe with Sony Vegas. And I think even Sony Vegas had timeline limitations in terms of how many tracks you do and layers and whatnot. So the fact that this was completely available, there was actually quite a substantial number of effects and keying and all kinds of stuff. um, It was really impressive for the fact that it was all free. And then including even things like being able to keyframe right on the timeline, which is something that maybe us professional editors using Premiere and Final Cut take for granted. Uh, But little things like that, as well as this was the first system that uh, editing system that was 64-bit, and that's kind of because since it was open source, they could just compile 64-bit. Like it wasn't that big of a deal compared to what Adobe and Final Cut were doing. Uh, as well as then they're one of the first to bring in some of the uh, GPU integration into their software. But I feel like there just hasn't been a lot of support behind it. Uh, and so one way or another, though, I tell you, it's it's not like it's. You know, something that uh, it's not worth looking at because it has denoisers for the audio, parametric EQ, normalizing pitch shifting, uh, as well as like scopes and everything else. Like, this is really fully featured. This is a good step above iMovie and it's free. Um, once again, though, it's like Linux only, uh, and so that's a little off putting for some people, but I'm sure that there's a distribution out there where this thing comes fresh and you can install it on a usb stick and you don't need to install anything on your computer you just put in the usb stick boot off the stick um which there's instructions all over the internet on how to do that on a computer and when it boots up it'll just load an operating system with the software and you can try it out and see if it really works for you but for me back in the day i was all about free and so i actually used it on a few projects and you know what i as far as i recall not really a whole lot of crashing or any problems or anything like that um they you know they've got a android controller which is kind of funny i don't yeah, know that's how... uh,
0: it's kind of interesting that they, they've implemented that that's something that i've seen uh for quite some time from a few developers um one of them i've met in person and i wish i could remember his name but uh, he has mm-hmm. a really good app for premiere pro this looks very rudimentary uh the support for this though it seems as though they're still developing a, a oh, 4k yeah. abilities uh looks like um it has various Kodak supports that have been updated fairly recently, including some sort of raw workflows. Now, this is one of them. Devin, can you think of anything else? I'm I'm trying to go through them in my head. I know Sony Vegas. Um, mm-hmm. I've I've used that occasionally. Not very happy with that sort of form factor and layout. We've obviously sure. got Premiere Pro. We've got. Our our OSX um, Final Cut, what else do do we have? You know, Sinaleri, that kind of snuck up on me. Um, You know, in the other freebie categories, I guess Blender, sort of, if you're making, like, uh, digital animation, but what about other editors?
1: In terms of free software, uh, there really isn't any other options. Uh, There is... For really, really basic stuff, and I actually use this quite a bit. Let me make sure I've got the name right, and I have, I'm have. talking about the right thing before I blurt something out. AvidMux. Uh, AvidMux uh, Avid works for Linux. It works for Windows, and I think there's an OSX copy. It doesn't necessarily update all that often, but uh, if anyone grew up using Virtual dub. Which was really impressive for being able to rewrap footage without needing to re encode it. Because, after all, even I find it kind of uh, frustrating that professional editing software like Premiere doesn't have an option to just rewrap or modify video files. No, you have it's, to re
0: render everything out again.
1: Yeah, you've got to re render. And, like, uh, during MPEG 2, there's some MPEG 2 workflows where uh, Premiere will just copy the MPEG 2 data because it's very basic. Yeah, but, but, like, can't if you, you use, got, like,
0: Handbrake to sort of accomplish that?
1: Handbrake has a few of those options, too. But Handbrake, uh, as far as I remember, uh, just like, I don't know. It didn't have a lot of compatibility with some of the really weird and out-there formats. And so uh, Avid Mux, that's A-V-I-D-E-M-U-X, uh, it, it it gives options to stitch things together like you would in Virtual Dub, but it supports MKHV, H.264. It'll re-encode audio but not video if you want it that way. Or it'll re-encode the video and leave the audio as it is. Uh, you know, it can put anything in any kind of container and it can read just about anything because this is all based off of the open source FFmpeg uh, way of rendering or uh, previewing video files and whatnot. So it it gives you the very basics, but I find it super useful when a client gives me some weird flipping file and Premiere doesn't like it at all and it wigs out and it goes crazy. And uh, this software has kind of saved my butt quite a few times or sometimes I get a really gigantic file And it's like, I just need these five minutes out of this two-hour file. And it's like, um, you know, inside of Premiere, if you're dealing with like large HD files and everything else, it can still take time to render and process and everything else. And in this software, I can literally just trim... That part out without re-rendering it, so it literally, you know, the file, new file gets created in seconds. And so, if I need to do several little parts like that, I can do that in seconds rather than like trying to convert the entire thing into a format that Premiere will understand and then cutting it in Premiere and rendering it out. It, it cuts hours out of certain workflows I had. So it, it's not like it's crucial, but I find it totally necessary. And yeah, it is compatible with OS X as well as Windows. Have,
0: now have did you ever use avid in the in the old days cuz you know i knew a bunch of colleges that had avid editing bays but i haven't seen anybody use avid in person probably uh, in 10 years yeah. or better and i mean well, i know it's out there they i still see trade magazines with like new avid editing software but i can't really think of anybody that's using avid uh,
1: there there are a lot of pros who use avid uh as nowadays it's probably closer uh, people can relate to it by calling it media uh, composer i believe is what it's called oh, okay yeah that sounds... so yeah and and so uh, just about everything uh like uh bad robot uh avid has a video about how bad robot uses media composer and pro tools and everything else in sync on the same timeline simultaneously and mm-hmm. they like tour around as they're working on star trek 2 or something like that and they show like how like you know the sound effects guys working on this scene while like the colorist is also working on that very same timeline Uh, and that's only accomplishable by buying huge gigantic server racks and server farms that they build into the building that allows them to have all that power to sit there and have multiple people work off of the same source file simultaneously so uh it's still very popular in the pro market for films uh and it's still pretty popular with news though i think right now uh if i'm not mistaken uh, CBS is looking at moving over to I think it's called Eden uh but it's the Grass Valley uh video editing software is that I... under
0: uh, Autodesk then is that one of the the sub products of Autodesk
1: I believe so it's been a while since I've uh since I've uh looked this up um Grass yeah or no Green Valley my bad Green Valley and their editing software which is EDIUS or something like that, EDIUS 6, which I think is free too. You can download um, older versions of EDIUS or the non-pro version for free. Try it out. I don't remember if it lets you render or not. It's been a while since I've touched it. But that's another version of video editing software that's out there that is popular and it's used by uh, pros. Most of the time, though, I find that people who use things like Avid or the, or, um, the Green Valley stuff they usually, like, it's usually, like, news or reality show or something like that, and they have a very specific set of things they do, and it's not necessarily software they go to for the sake of flexibility. Uh, One thing that Avid has over any other video editing software is the fact that uh, they have a whole hardware line that goes with it. That's true. uh, And so when you combine, like, a nitrous engine, it's like you can have, you know, a $2,000 workstation or something like that, and you hook that up to this $8,000, $10,000 Eight ten dollars $10,000 nitrous engine, which is like, uh, you know, probably about this tall, super thick. It's like a 4U rack, if you know what rack stuff is. And, uh, and that guy does everything in real time. So you can put multiple layers of color correction and effects and keying and green screening and everything else. And that nitrous engine will play in real time. Uh, So that for one thing, like if you're butt up against a broadcast, you could play back and edit in real time, though that's kind of sketchy. Most wouldn't do that, but you could Um, as well, too. Then all your renders happen like in less than real time because you have this gigantic nitrous engine that's just built for pumping out footage. Disadvantage, though, is then like you need to conform to certain codecs. You can't sit here and throw anything at it like you do with Premiere and expect it to work all the time. So. There's limitations with it, but that's why a lot of uh, studio houses, pros and stuff like that will use something like, uh, you know, Avid's uh, offerings or things like that, because these hardware solutions allow them to work so much faster than if you built some kind of $5,000 monster, you know, dual Xeon editing rig, Premiere is still going to chug away on 4K footage, you know, if you hand it something that's raw, so... Now, moving on down
0: the line, if you want a free editor, uh, Sinaleri, go check it out, Linux, you know, all that stuff. Uh, There are a few other things up on the list here, and this one, next one, is kind of funny. Um, I put this in here just because it it gave me a chuckle when I saw it. Uh, If you're not familiar with Manfrotto, they make a a lot of decent tripods, mid-level, mid-range, fluid heads, and so on, but they also sort of make uh, led panels now when i say that sort of it's because basically they contract with a light panel in order to create uh, new products that are branded with manfrotto these are the new releases from the manfrotto uh, light panel collaboration and we have the spectra 2 which will run you about 220 dollars the micro pro for 349 and the chroma 2 for about 420 dollars These don't look very spectacular, very plasticky, Uh, nothing really exciting here, other than the fact that Manfrotto is basically late to the game in the LED category. Devin, do these excite you in the least?
1: (laughs) No, not really, because like you said, it's light panels with a Manfrotto name on it, and Manfrotto as a name in terms of lighting doesn't offer me anything. Uh, You know, if if it's a a tripod, that's interesting. Now, me personally, a lot of the lead designers from Manfrotto went off to go do, I think, Benro? Is Benro right? Is that a type of tripod? That sounds
0: correct. Benro does make tripods.
1: Yes, yeah. So a lot of the, some of the engineers and designers I've heard have gone over to Benro now. um, And so I kind of look to them a lot as possible gear to buy if I'm willing to spend a little extra money and get something that's quality. Uh, So that's – but when it comes to lighting, no. I don't look at Manfrotto for lighting, uh, though light panels do make good stuff. So I know – and that's probably why they have this joint venture. I'm sorry, joint ventures because Manfrotto probably wants to do more than just support gear, and they need a name that they can, you know, actually make money off of. So light panels make sense, but it's not bringing anything new. Uh, It's not like the specs are crazy. I feel like now that even some of the cheapest LED panels – are able to get us up to 95 or more CRI, um, there's there's less of a difference between the super high quality light panels and the uh, smaller ones. And some of that is in build quality and some of it is in feature set. So in, in this case, it's like, it's like, really? Like... Like, what do you, I don't know what their end game is. I don't know where they're headed with this. Maybe they plan on, like, starting to add more and, like, add features and stuff like that. But if a new light panel doesn't come out and it's not impressive in terms of battery life or output or feature set, then most of the time it's not worth talking about because I really feel like LED light panels in general is pretty saturated uh, with all the options out there. Now, the LED Fresnel market, I think, is still very light and there's still room for people to get into that market and make something that's interesting because there's only a few companies that are doing it and I think most of them aren't doing that good of a job of it, while other ones are doing a very good job of it. But still, I think there's room in that market. But in terms of, hey, here's a little five inch light to put on top of your camera, I feel like that's really saturated at this point and there's not a whole lot that a a company's gonna bring that's new to it. So I'm looking at the LED
0: panel itself and they do have specialty lenses on there. I believe that's a, a light panel patent so it's okay Uh, nothing too exciting but let's move on to the next item on the list here we've got these new focal reducers uh, or speed boosters whatever you want to use as a name for these devices but looks like uh, basically the company the parent company that makes midicon lenses has come out with a new set of of focal reducers for Micro Four Thirds cameras. We've got an m 42 a Canon FD, and a Monolta MD uh, adapter. These are gonna be about $149, and they've completely redesigned the optics. If you're not familiar with some of the focal reducers that were on the market earlier this year, a lot of them were known for Having poor optical quality, they're claiming that these have been completely redesigned with new lens coatings and so on. Do you think these will be a better value than last year's round of focal reducers for M four thirds cameras?
1: Uh, I, I hope so. I really do because I'd really like to get one forty nine is a really sexy price, by the way. It is not that we haven't had boosters at that price before. Uh, But usually in side by side, it's like a Metabone still has the edge and sharpness and in contrast, though, you know, we've seen I I feel like we've seen recently a lot of people moving away from it just because, uh, you know, autofocus issues on some lenses as well as just generally if you're doing uh, some people say that it makes it softer. I haven't necessarily seen it. The math usually checks out that it should just make it as sharp as it was before. Uh, considering that it's narrowing or sharper detail. or I sharper think. yeah or sharper because you're mitigating uh, any kind of artifacting in the glass but uh, some people have talked about weird flaring issues and stuff like that trouble getting the uh, contrast that they want out of their lenses uh, but at hundred fifty if it if it can be like ninety percent as good as a meta bones and I really can't tell the difference I would I'd buy it up right away I I'd, I'd, I'd probably buy the Canon mount and then put a you know, Canon to Nikon adapter on it so I can put all my Nikon Primes on it, because most of the stuff I have is Nikon Primes, but it's still nice to have that. That might get a little a convoluted, though,
0: though, man, because it's a Canon FD. So FD is the old, old-school uh, Canon format. Um, I mean, it might be too narrow, actually, to fit a Nikon in between the FD. You, do you think that'll work?
1: You know? No, no. I, I, thought, I thought that Nikon was still longer than an FD. I could be wrong, but in mm. terms of flange distance, I thought Nikon G was the longest. Anyways, I'm super excited either way, <laughs> uh, because I can hear the
0: incite- excitement in your voice, man.
1: <laughs> because it would be, it, it would be great too. I've I've looked at them for 150. I can't find consistent reviews. And a lot of people have been disappointed with them or mixed reviews, but there's a $100 version and $150 version and there's other resellers. And so it's a messy market. And if this can come out and be like, hey, this is version two, this is how good it looks, and this is the name on it, and I can check that performance, then I would totally buy one up. Medicon
0: has been doing some really good stuff with – very large aperture lenses i believe they have a 50 0.95 full frame lens that is available for the sony a7 line of cameras which is it's pretty sexy i've almost pulled the trigger on that a couple of times uh although you know manual focus at f 0.95 may be a little bit tough on a full frame body to, (laughs) to use on anything in particular uh I, I couldn't justify it. But what I could justify for the Sony A7S is this 24 to 70 millimeter f4 lens. Now, this is actually the first native Sony A7S lens. I have purchased and put into my collection and I've been shooting on this camera for well over a year maybe a year and a half now the a7s is known for having slow autofocus and the a7 line in general and this lens is no exception I've been shooting on this for the past couple of days and I've got it right here in front of me on my a7s body Uh, you know for a $1,200 lens (laughs) i'm i'm a little disappointed in this and i mean first of all Devin, do you think sony makes good lenses have you messed around with any of sony's lenses is it a brand you really long for
1: uh you know i'm just throwing that at you whether i know i know or not i i haven't i haven't even really touched any kind of sony lenses besides maybe uh some of their b4 mount or eng style motorized lenses and those tend to be pretty solid performers but uh, in terms of photography, no, because I haven't had an E-mount, so. So this is my
0: first experience with a, owning a piece of Sony glass, and I can say that I'm mildly disappointed in this. Uh, it works okay. It's nice that uh, it's native mount for the A7 body, and AF does work, you know, albeit slowly. Uh, the lens itself, though, uh, compared to something like the Canon uh, 24-105 F4, it's not quite as sharp. Uh, it's bokeh is kind of ugly and it's kind of weirdly randomly soft in the corners depending on the focal length it's it's sort of a strange lens and honestly i probably wouldn't have pulled the trigger on this guy unless i hadn't found it for uh 500 bucks on craigslist because it's a, normally it's a 1200 hundred dollar lens so that's the reason i'm messing around with this right now Otherwise, I've been adapting almost 100% Canon Glass to this. Now, while I was looking at the price of this lens on eBay, I noticed that the Sony A7S is down to an extraordinarily low and affordable price for those of you looking to get a Sony A7S into your collection. Look at these prices, Devin $1,400. for a camera that last year was 3000 and some change and a lot of these are coming with you know nice waterproof cases lots of batteries and extra chargers extra
1: accessories i mean that part of that though is it's a totally devalued product because the successor came out so quickly uh, and added such a substantial feature that everyone wanted in the first version anyway. So people that were like, ah, it doesn't include internal 4K recording, but I guess I'll deal with it, are now like, okay, you fixed it. So they're selling off all their old stuff. So it's a very saturated marketplace right now for buying used A7Ss. Uh, and it's, it's way, way more uh, steep of a price drop than even we saw with the GH4 after a year. So, Well, and the other question I I'm, I'm, I want
0: to put out there is do you think Sony products especially their DS their uh, mirrorless cameras are going to hold their value over time or even their lenses because really this lens right now new is still 1200 bucks but going out on the used market and finding it for that cheap is pretty extraordinary and it got me looking in the Seattle area I can find like the Sony 35 millimeter F2 lens, which is normally like a $500 prime for somewhere in the range of 250 to $300. And that's, you know, a fairly recent released lens. It's dropped that much in price and in value that fast.
1: Well, to be honest, I don't know anyone who's actually bought Sony glass besides you. Everyone with an a seven S is always using Canon L glass, um, or other like Rokinons or something like that on there. So, uh, but, you know if the it, it it is it is disconcerting to see it drop that much but sony is not a nikon or a canon so the same thing too we talked about the panasonic i mean it took much longer but you look at how the panasonic lenses have really dropped in price compared to when they first came out as being like the end all best lenses for your gh3 or gh4 when like they were really uh, selling them as like these are great fantastic lenses to use with our super high-end cameras and now they're going for probably half, maybe even less than half of what they originally were, and maybe three, four years later. So I think in this case, uh, Sony, it's not that strong of a brand when it comes to lenses. And I think the fact, too, that none of the lenses are adaptable to any other platform. I mean, even if you get a Panasonic lens, you can turn around and throw it in on Olympus, and it'll work. And the same thing, you can throw Olympus on that. I mean, that's kind of what's nice about having something like Micro Four Thirds, such an open standard. Um... Sony, on the other hand, with their e-mount is like, you know, it's it works on their video cameras, too. Like, their DSLRs and their video cameras share a mount, and that's kind of, like, really cool. But other than that, it, it kind of becomes this weird, like, well, you know, how much is this worth if I can only use it with, like, a, a handful of cameras uh, that are maybe you could argue, like, worth using? Because I know their DSLR market is much deeper than just uh, the A7 series. Uh, but I don't know of a lot of people who are interested in that section of Sony's cameras in terms of people who are willing to put this much money into the lenses.
0: Now, this uh, brings me to the first question since a number of you asked me to start throwing a few of your questions in here. Uh, This one comes from, let's see, Dimitri. He wants to know what Sony A7S adapter I'm using to uh, adapt my Canon lenses and if it supports VC. Well, right now... I myself am using this adapter right here. Uh, in the Amazon post, they don't actually tell you what it is, but it's the light adapter. Uh, this adapter works okay. Autofocus is slow. VC is sporadic, on especially on the Tamron 24 to 70 f28 that i normally use so if you are looking for that uh, it could be an issue i will say however that you need to check on firmware updates Uh, this as well as some of the other adapters in my collection have a socket that allows you to plug a micro usb cord into the adapter and update the firmware on this in order to get better performance so this is a 79 dollars adapter not really super happy with it. Don't hate it. I use it as as is. I've used the Metabones adapter too, and I didn't feel that the AF was any better than uh, this guy in terms of speed and accuracy. So take that for what it is. Uh, that this one's really cheap though. Seventy nine dollars is very affordable. Well, and
1: don't don't forget too to possibly upgrade the firmware on your lenses uh, if you're running around with Sigmas. Uh, right, Sigma. Uh, what's what's the eighteen to thirty five that we always talk about?
0: Eighteen to thirty five f one eight is a Sigma lens. Right, right. And the, I think don't you have to have a special cradle in order to update the firmware on that guy? You
1: on some of them you do. Some of them actually have an exposed USB port. Uh, but a lot of photography shops, um, not saying you need to go all the way to like B&H in New York, but a lot of photography shops will actually have a Sigma adapter and a lot of them will just do the upgrade for free. Sigma isn't trying to microcharge people for upgrading their lenses, the firmware on it. Uh, but that's something to consider too, because I've heard on some of these adapters uh, that uh, just upgrading the lens firmware has improved its responsiveness with all the other electronics. So. Uh, Consider that as well if you're going to be using adapters to make sure that your lens, your body, and the adapter are all updated.
0: Yeah, that actually caught me off guard with my Metabones uh, speed booster for the uh, GH4. When I wasn't paying attention, they updated the firmware and allowed autofocus for Canon lenses. And that turned from a product I was about ready to chuck out the window to a product that I'm continuing to hold on to and use on a regular basis. Now, moving on to memory cards, uh, they've become very affordable, almost commoditized in pricing, and that brings me to the PNY 128-gig uh, UHS3 SDXC memory card at $44. This is on sale right now pretty much everywhere. You can find that on Amazon, uh, Newegg as well as B&H. I kind of wanted to bring up the discussion. What memory cards are you using right now, Devin? Uh, myself, and I'll start with my selection. I've actually, even though I prefer CF cards as a tougher uh, memory source, I and a faster I've, memory source. Well, sometimes. I mean, that, that's <laughs> arguable depending on your application. But what I will say is I've kind of switched over to these Transcend 128 gig cards. I've got seven or eight of them now. And I've been cooking along with these and fairly happy with the performance. What about you? What are you using?
1: Uh, well, I actually, it's, it's strange. I actually have my SD cards here ordered by uh, Speed. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, I did a speed test on all of them and How actually OCD just on you? right speed. Right. Well, no, because I usually like to just work with whatever's the most reliable and the fastest. So I know I have less issues down the road, but I like to keep my slower cards with me just in case I need to use them with an audio recorder or I just I'm running out of space and I need something. Uh, so my primary, of course, is the Sandisk Extreme Pro 64 gigabyte that touts a 95 megabytes per second. Uh, the only card that's compatible for shooting Blackmagic RAW, as well as the only card that I would ever consider, considering how many problems I've had with other SD cards, even doing ProRes uh, LQ, has the cameras has stopped recording on me. So, uh, and then followed by uh, Sony has got some 94 megabit cards that I am, uh, you know, that aren't terrible that I'm a fan of, uh, you know, U3 kind of stuff. And that has, you know, like a write speed of maybe around 60 or 70 megabytes per second. And then I also have a PNY Elite Performance, the same kind we're talking about right here, that claims, this one claims 60 megabits a second, but this one actually had like 50 megabit write speed, so that's why it's up there in the chart. So I pretty much have just waited for whenever there's a sale. Uh, and I see pretty good bench numbers on what I'm recording to. Not that things like the GH3 or GH4 need crazy amounts of bitrate like something recording pro- ProRes does, but it's something to keep in mind. I like the ability to have the speed case down the road. I want to get something like the Blackmagic Video Assist, which does ProRes to SD cards, because that's going to need fast SD cards, um, as well as, you know, Other cameras down the line who are going to be recording 4K or RAW or something like that. So, for the most part, I'm really into spending way too much money on Sandisk Extremes. But I've gone, (laughs) I've gone all the the Lexar man, (laughs) the Lexar. (laughs) But I've gone all the way out. This is probably the worst card I have. This is a, a Sony 40 megabits per second read speed. Uh, which I think its write speed maybe came out to 22 or 23, really abysmal. But the 64 gig card, I think, was maybe like 20 bucks. Uh, and it, as far as I can see, my GH3 videos 1080p records just fine to it. So for me, actually, I think that, uh, you know, it, it depends on what camera you're using. You don't need the fastest and best out there, uh, but it is helpful to have a brand that you can actually trust. And SanDisk in the SD market is one of those you can.
0: I wonder what's going to happen with SanDisk since they were bought out by Western Digital. Uh, I know I've had a couple of stinkers come from SanDisk. And I've actually, you know, Transcend used to be kind of a second tier down there with uh, ADATA and some of the other, well, PNYs. But the problem,
1: yeah, but that also makes Transcend um, the market for counterfeits. Uh, This right here is a counterfeit Transcend, 128 gigabytes a second. Um, It does work, though. It gives me 128 gigabytes a second. I use it for uh, like security cam footage because I think it maxes out at about 20 megabit read speed and like 15 megabit write speed. So it's super slow and it would take forever to fill 128. But for something like uh, my security camera, it records, you know, JPEGs anyway, so it doesn't matter. Uh, So, and same thing with Sandisk, too. You'll find tons of counterfeits. And I've even heard of Sandisk. I think last time I went to their website, they were warning people about counterfeits on Amazon even uh, because Amazon has trouble fighting them and shutting that down. Well, and
0: Sandisk is actually kind of bad. Um, I contacted their customer service a couple of months ago because I got a memory card that looked a little iffy. And mm-hmm. they're like, no, this is a counterfeit. You need to claim it as a counterfeit. So I claimed it as a counterfeit. And like two weeks later, I get an email back from them. They're like, uh, sorry, we weren't aware of that particular branch of our product line. We have so many different <laughs> product lines. We were confused. And actually, that's not a counterfeit. It's a real thing. And and that's actually, um, oh there's gosh. reports of that happening with the 200 gig uh, micro SD card that I was talking about the other day. Yeah. I love that card. It, but if you call Sandis because I, I went to register it for my lifetime warranty, and mm-hmm. uh, there was nowhere to register it i'm like well this is weird you know like you couldn't pull it down in any of the drop menus we like okay what's going on so i call them they're like we don't make that card sir uh you're gonna have to report that I'm like, wh- what you make this and they're like oh well we're gonna have to check on it and they got back to me in a day and they're like yeah we make it sorry we just haven't updated our you know registration stuff and that kind of thing is going on and then they're getting bought out i mean I wonder if people are starting to just check out as far as is caring about their product line and everything else. No offense, Sandisk. I mean, still, I have a ton of your cards.
1: No, but it's it's partially understandable uh, with how if if your entire branding and market is being slammed with counterfeits so fast that you really can't fight it, you reach a point where you just kind of have to accept it and you just always start assuming that because – uh, there's more counterfeits out there than there is genuines. So, Have
0: you run into any of those crazy, uh, they modify the firmware on the SD card uh, so that it looks to your computer like it's a larger size than it really is. So they buy like really cheap eight gig cards. It registers as 128 gig. And every time you write eight
1: gig, it just starts erasing that eight gig and writing over the top of it again. No, I haven't had one of those personally, but I have had a friend who got one of those. Uh, as an external drive, uh, when we popped open the casing, it was a little 8-gig uh, thumb drive. and uh, But it was, uh, the, you know, the drive reported being a 1-terabyte drive. And they, they threw in a few extra weights. They had, like, some washers hot glued to the bottom of the casing. <laughs> so that it felt like, you know, it was actually an external drive. So I've, I've been in contact with one of those. They, they are crazy. and it's, uh, But, you know, it's nothing unusual. Like, uh, for example, I've got here on one of my LED lights a... Um, uh, this is a Sony FP mount and this is one of the cheap $20 ones, which it should cost more because this is the F 970 960, which is supposed to be, you know, the extended battery life and everything else compared to most brands will sell this for 50 or more if you go with Watson or Wasabi. And if you crack this open, cause I have cracked one of these open, I don't have it in front of me, uh, you know, it's only about two thirds full. Like oh, really? It's, yeah, it's, it's not a full, they, they don't use the full size of it, uh, because they aren't using the milliamp hours that are reported on it, because they'll always be like, oh yeah, this is 6800 milliamp hours, uh, which you're like, oh wow, that's more than the Sony's got, but then once you actually start using it, you're like, wow, this lasts half the time of a genuine Sony. Uh, which still, you know, the Sony ones I think cost like 120 or something like that for that same battery. So I still don't have the money to buy genuine Sonys. But for me, uh, Watson or the Wasabi ones do really well, and they pretty much meet the same performance as a Sony.
0: Yeah, I believe uh, Torch LED, the Bolts, uh, they sell uh, their own brand of batteries to go along with that, and you, you can they guarantee that they're 100% of the milliamp hour rating that they are offering. It's I didn't I haven't actually seen any that uh, were filled with washers though. That's uh that's yeah, kind of scary, man. Be be aware, I guess.
1: No, that's and, and if if you're like if if you're in that area of like Chinatown in any major city and you see the little photography shop and they've got like tons of SD cards and all kinds of stuff like that and like ridiculous prices that are too good to be true. Those are absolutely too good to be true. Uh, if your battery price is too good to be true, it's a sh- it's a crappy battery. And if your SD card is too good to be true, it won't hold all your data or be fast. So, those are two things to consider. Those are things you just can't cheap out on. You can't find a good deal unless you're like on Amazon and you're you know you see that the seller is SanDisk and you see a really good deal. Then you're like, oh, this is like fifteen dollars cheaper than you know full retail. Then you know it's a good deal. Or like uh, DJ found with the two hundred gigabyte micro sd that's a good deal but if you go to like oh let me go on like google shopping or ebay and see if i can find a better deal you'll just end up with heartbreak
0: uh google shopping that is that is a trevor treasure trove of disaster every time you get <laughs> on there is. it's just like what is this oh wow it's like a thousand
1: dollars less than the other one i should buy this and then you know you don't get it and you go it's... on the website and it's a sketchy looking website that's like give me three credit cards
0: yes <laughs> Alright, speaking of sketchy, uh, if you really want all of the SD space, this is a sketchy price, Uh, we're talking a dollar a gig, but that dollar a gig gets you 13 terabytes of SSD storage space, so if you're working with stuff like 4K or 8K raw footage, you can have all of the gigabytes for a dollar a gig, that means about $13,000. Uh, for that SSD. You're talking about, and I think they've actually got a uh, warning here, this is uh, the fixed stars uh, if you're interested in (laughs) purchasing something this expensive. And I am not in the market for this, but I just kind of wanted to point it out as an interesting thing at which uh, the pricing has gotten to. I'm trying to find, they actually even had a little uh, disclaimer on here that mentions that it is not formatted to 13 terabytes. It's like 11 and some change based on you know standard recording. I can't find it anywhere in here. Devin, what do you think about 13 terabyte drives? I know I've listed a couple applications here, such as, let's see, we've got 4K and 8K raw acquisition, CG and effects work in post, and... Basically, massive amounts of really fast access storage for things like object storage and streaming content distribution. It, it, who's this for? Uh, super rich people I, and I, I like guess. businesses. No, it
1: just, uh, it doesn't. Man, it's the thing is, is that for that price, is that you could probably meet a lot of that speed. I mean, what what are we talking here? That this thing is um, uh, the dollar gig average. so. Well, no, but it's got average speeds, right? We're talking like 500 up and down. In yeah, 500 megs
0: read, read and write speeds. Uh, those are the sequentials, though. The If you dig into the data for this, the random and 4K writes and reads are kind of in the tank. So really, this is designed very specifically for just slamming a crap load of sequential reads and a sequential which, which writes. Which
1: in it. video editing, we do a lot of. We, we take Absolutely. full advantage of sequential when we're doing video and audio work. Uh, But you compare that to, uh, you know, what's it, 200 bucks uh, times four. 200 bucks for a four-terabyte drive. You buy four of those, so you get 16 terabytes. Uh, That comes out to $800, and you spend $100 to put that inside of a little box that you connect to the back of your computer that provides, you know, some kind of uh, RAID eSATA or something like that. And you have a 16-terabyte RAID. Uh, for, you know, less than a 1,000. Here's where I'm concerned is that uh, I'm thinking about, like, if you were to get this, how are you going to back it up? No one ever, con- like, considers, hey, if I get this kind of storage thing, I need to figure out a way to back it up because it'll disappear, whether it's a RAID or not or SSD or it doesn't matter. It'll disappear on you at the worst possible time. That's how it always well, happens Well, and if you think me.
0: about the uh, read speeds from this, 525 megs per second read speeds, if you filled this to the brim you're talking probably like seven days maybe i mean i'm just doing mm-hmm. like some rough in my head math but seven maybe eight days to read everything off of this 13 terabyte drive that's, that's yeah it's pretty substantial and then well it's interesting you mentioned backups because Uh, Other thing I added to this little list here is these 10-terabyte drives. Uh, They're filled with helium to reduce the friction and resistance. Uh, This is an article from PC Pro. And it's really interesting. These are going to be in about uh, the $1,000 to $2,000 range, and they're 10-terabyte spinning drives. So they're a quarter, a tenth of the price of that 13-terabyte drive. All Mm -hmm. the backup storage you need, it'll just take you – uh, ages to write to it
1: well and it's it's one of those that um i guess th- see on the enterprise level that makes a lot of sense because where things like uh racks in terms of servers and server farms are measured in things called use uh which is how tall your whatever it is that you're putting your, into your rack.
0: storage density goes up immensely if you have
1: and and so for some people like May, giving them enough storage, uh, if they need to upgrade their storage solution, uh, sometimes adding more use, as it's called, uh, you know, isn't going to be cost effective because of how much money it costs at some places to rent space and everything else. So uh, I could see this being really useful. That's why Seagate is targeting enterprise. They're targeting people who have giant server farms and they've got lots of data and they need to swap out uh, lots of stuff at a time. And I see the same thing for this SSD as a personal workstation. It still feels like it's really excessive and that it would be better served. It, like It's not like what this performance or size is a new thing. Like we've had it before just in bulkier cases. Now we have an opportunity to put it all on one drive and put it inside the computer, which is kind of nice and nifty. Uh, but I feel like for that price, I don't know. And then I feel like... Uh, whatever I have, I know I need to have a backup of it and I'm not going to cloud backup 13 terabytes. It's just not possible. Even if you have Google Fiber, that's just not going to happen uh, within the year. So uh, it's, it's one of those where, you know, it's it's going to fit a certain type of person and a certain type of workflow. Uh, but I think even for raw 4k, it's a bit slow. I feel like you'd be better served working in pieces on one of those uh, gigabit uh, PCI boards that we talked about before.
0: I don't know, man. If you're, well, for recording purposes, the Red Dragon, and because uh, I think they just came out with that uh, new sensor, uh, it's it does 4K and 8K uh, red code on an SSD. So, and I think you can get get that on one-to-one compression, so there is no, you know, compression mm-hmm. at all. And, and it can handle it on a single SSD. And I think they have a list of SSDs that are supported. That would be when I first saw this, I was like, ah, some Red user <laughs> Probably, is going to spend yeah. a crap ton of money to shove a thirteen or a nine terabyte drive into their Red Dragon and get going with that. And and I mean that if you have the money to spend that much on your camera and your body, I mean, it, it far be it from me to tell you not to spend thirteen thousand dollars on an SSD. I mean, if I had one, that'd probably I'd put it in a windowed case, you know, make sure it was up there with LEDs behind it, and I'd be like, "Hey, look at this right here." Maybe get some, um, you know, singing angels to play every time you walked <laughs> into the room. That would be. Be this, massively is, this
1: is a situation, though, where you could get the same performance and more space uh, for a little bit less than the price. So really, I feel like what you're paying for here is the size of the package and the convenience. Because uh, obviously messing around with uh, RAID cards and stuff like that isn't for people who, uh, you know, aren't familiar with computers and how storage works.
0: One other thing I wanted to mention on those 10 terabyte drives, and actually uh, Seagate isn't the only one making them uh, HTGS or HT... Uh, whatever the the sub-company of Hitachi is. I think it's... Uh, let me see here. Uh, I don't know. I'm just going to go Death Star. But uh, you can buy these in both uh, SAS and SATA. So SAS would be what you'd be using in more of a, a server environment, and SATA is more of a consumer class option. So mm-hmm. they are actually probably sort of marketing these towards a few consumers out there. And I mean, really, if you were just doing like long-term storage of massive amounts of data you know that's a lot of space for a relatively affordable amount of money and uh minimal power consumption so huh
1: well and and it it depends on a few other factors too because raids are expensive especially if you start talking about raid 5s raid 6s things that actually take a little bit of power and processing in order to figure out how all the drives are going to make sure that you don't lose anything and I, I can see many situations where somebody has, say, something that's like f- uh, six drives big or eight drives big, and they're like, we need to upgrade the storage. But the only, like, maybe cost-effective way of doing that would be, like, with a four-terabyte drive. And, uh, you know, you're, you're like, well, we can add a whole nother case of drives, you know, and a whole nother server, and we can back it up with that. Uh, or we can do it in an expansion system. Uh, But in this case, they don't have to add anything. They can just pop in in the existing uh, infrastructure, 10 terabyte drives, and double up their capacity uh, while still not needing to buy more RAID cards, more controller systems, more boxes, or anything like that. So... I, even though it seems pricey, I, I see it being really effective for people who are looking to upgrade storage in a current infrastructure without all the headache and overhead costs of supporting a bigger infrastructure. So that's kind of exciting.
0: I'm looking right now at uh, six terabyte drives, and they're down to 246 bucks. it looks like, for the Western Digital Reds. There's some more affordable even yet than that. So man, it might actually be more economic to go with the six terabyte drives and just double them up over the uh, 10 terabyte drives.
1: But like I said, like, for example, I've got a server that uses a Dell uh, i6 uh, PRC RAID card or something like that, that runs a RAID 6, and that card can only support of eight drives. That's how many SAS ports no, it has that's true. eight.
0: And then you'd have to upgrade your entire system in order to accommodate more than that count kind of drives. Yeah, so
1: either I need to get another, another shelf to fill with drives, uh, or at least I need to get another card that I can route to another uh, enclosure for holding all these drives. So you, you consider all that kind of stuff, and it's like, uh, eh, you know what? There's certain solutions where it's like, this is way cheaper than going out and building a whole new system, so...
0: All right, next on the list here, and this is actually something that's another uh, unicorn. Uh, this, is, <laughs> this is a uh, M-mount to E-mount adapter. Uh, if you're not familiar with M-mount, uh, it's very common in Leica lenses. Uh, it's a mechanically moving, twisting sort of unit in order to accomplish autofocus. This guy, if you watch the videos, and I've got a link here to Sony Alpha Rumors, dot com. Uh, they've got some images up. They've kind of been hinting at this device for a while. Uh, if you watch some of these videos here, the AF is fairly slow, uh, but it does give you AF with your A7 body. So it is an option once it is released. Uh, just a heads up these Leica lenses. Are somewhere in the range of anywhere from nine hundred to two thousand dollars, depending on what you pick so wow. i don 't know if it 's the most economically friendly method of adapting lenses to your a seven s body devin anything to add to that before I just dive on past this article.
1: Uh, no, that's fine. I'm sure there's at least one Leica fan out there, but I haven't met them yet.
0: <laughs> All right, let's talk about this right here. This is actually the Blackmagic Ursa. There's more footage being released. Uh, someone put together a cute little short about uh, winning the lottery, and I didn't watch the other short, I'll be <laughs> honest there. Devin, <laughs> the what do you think of this? The way
1: better. Uh, I think this looks fantastic. Uh, when you check out, uh, they, they did a, sh- a little video on backstage, Motley Crue, uh, it's super sharp. It's super detailed. Uh, now, of course, like I uh, put in the post, this is all color graded. You know that they probably maybe ran some denoise I mean, it, we know it's raw, uh, but you don't know how much denoising was in it or anything like that. But for the most part, this looks exactly like something you'd get out of a red or an uh, area an or something like that. Like the sharpness and quality is there. Um, and for the most part, even though, like I said, we don't know how colored it is or anything else like that. Uh, I'm liking the way it looks already. So,
0: Man, this is another shot in 4K or 4.6K 4, 4. and released in 1080p yep. smack in the face.
1: What, but what, the what, dynamic what? range is there. One oh. thing I noticed on the short, though, is I saw a lot of rolling shutter. Um, maybe not a lot. I mean, you compare it back to like a 5D Mark II, that's a lot.
0: But There is quite a bit uh, of motion, though, in the... Uh, in that uh, little lady walking around and falling over the camera, and it wasn't yeah. going Jello Cam too bad.
1: No, it wasn't, but I could still kind of detect it, and I don't know if that's just you know lack of rigging, um, or if that's you know, yeah, it's hard to say without like really seeing how they're using the camera. Uh, But that makes me think, okay, this isn't, you know, going to be like a global shutter like some of the other options they've provided and stuff like that. So it's one of those things that's to be mindful of. And another complaint people have had about is the fact that there's no built-in ND filter, uh, which seems to, you know, garner a huge flame war on the Internet because there's half the people who are like, oh, built-in ND quality is always crap. Real pros use external NDs. And me thinking to myself, every, you know, every news camera out there and stuff like that uh, is usually using some kind All of internal NDs. All right, hold on a second. NDs.
0: What's wrong with internal NDs? Like I've used so, them before, and they're very handy. And yeah, they and are useful. super handy. What's wrong with
1: them? Some people say that the quality is not great. There's not enough control over it. People say if you're really serious, you need to put on a map box and use proper four by four ND filters on glass. And da 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 da. And, and like the, those are valid points. You know, if you're shooting some big million dollar feature. Uh, And you have all this support gear and equipment, but like part of the Ursa Mini is the fact that it's supposed to be mobile and easy to use, which lends itself towards workflows and documentary work, reality shows, um, news gathering, all that kind of stuff, which all of those can really benefit from an ND filter because they don't have control over their lighting. uh, And they usually don't have time or the space to set up mat boxes and all that kind of stuff. So uh, but it's interesting, I was reading some posts on, uh, you know, people flaming each other over no built-in ND, because people feel like, without a lack of built-in ND, it kind of prevents it from being the perfect camera. I wouldn't call it close to being the perfect camera until I actually see it and see what it can do, but uh, that is something to keep mindful if you are looking at an Ursa Mini, is the fact that you won't have built-in ND, while uh, though with that, you know, depending on... Um, uh, what kind of lenses you use and stuff like that. There might be some better options for you. But uh, I, I think the footage looks sharp. Yeah, it's only in 1080p, the copy war game. We still aren't getting raw files, which is a little frustrating. Nobody can just take a raw video of some dynamic range and show us, hey, this is how it performs. This is what the blacks look like out of the box. But uh, so far, all the stuff that has come out, I think, has looked really great. And I haven't really had any complaints about any of it. It would and, be really
0: nice, though, to get some three to one compression raw footage. You know, maybe just absolutely. a single clip dumped out on the internet that you could download in, in a several and, gig and package and, like, push take around. A look
1: at it. Yeah, you can push around and speed grade or resolve and see what it does and how it plays with it and stuff like that. So, especially with uh, Resolve, because, you know, Resolve is hooked in with Blackmagic, it'd be great to see how their software works with their camera in terms of the LUTs and pulling out the colors and everything else. So. I'm still waiting for that day when you know we're actually gonna see something more than just like a few promo videos from some. And I'm past just waiting guys, for that but... day for the camera to actually
0: be released. cheat. Right? <laughs> this I is, know. I mean, this is like the what the second NAB that this thing has been this announced. This is this but...
1: is the Blackmagic Shuffle. Like soon, it's gonna be soon. <laughs> Check out this
0: thing. We're gonna leak some more product shots. You'll get it yep. eventually. Uh-huh. We'll, we'll
1: we'll give it to you know a dude in the UK and he'll shoot a video with it, <laughs> and then you can see how good it is. <laughs>
0: Oh, by the way, it'll be uh, released in 1080p, so you won't know for sure what you're looking at. It's an interesting yeah. camera. Like uh, if you're out there trying to figure out what to buy, um, you know, I always tell people buy the cameras that are available. Don't wait yeah. for the camera because you're just going to waste your time waiting on and on until Instead somebody actually shooting. releases it. Yep, exactly. Now, I'm going to go ahead and hit another question here. Uh, One of you guys uh, sent out a question, and uh, the YouTube name is kind of funny. It's uh, Angel Cupcake. Um, uh, Okay, I'm going to stop laughing there. Thank you, Angel Cupcake. Uh, Your question was, what CFLs are you using in your softbox, and where do you get them? Uh, I have a number of softboxes out there and in the studio that I've used for years. They're stationary lights. Obviously, with CFLs, you don't want to really move them around a ton. Uh, they're easy to break, and you know transporting can be an issue. But for stationary fixed lighting in both a photography and video environment, they work pretty good. Uh, but you got to be careful what you buy. Now, I'm looking here on Amazon, and oftentimes... I buy my lights from Amazon and no reason particularly other than they're easy to get. But going through, you'll notice one thing in particular. You'll see a lot of Cowboy Studio and Lomo Studio. And both of those, I kind of generally recommend shying away from. And I should have brought up this article. I did not. Uh, But I did some tests quite some time ago on both of these lights comparing them to each other as far as light output goes and what i found was that the cowboy studio lights and the lomo studio lights don't put out nearly as much light as equivalently rated alzo lights so alzo and i'm trying to find one of the how do you spell alzo is that uh, uh, a l z o a l z o thank you Devin, for mm-hmm. helping dj <laughs> find stuff that should be easy to find. If you look for Alzo lights, I've got some of them up right here. They're a little more expensive than you're going to spend on other light bulbs in general for CF bulbs, but their output is stronger than any of the light bulbs you'll get from uh, Cowboy Studios or Lomo lights or anything else. Uh, they generally are a little bit more compact, a lot brighter, and a little more expensive. And you'll notice that they have color temperature ratings to go along with these. Uh, they don't provide as much flicker. Uh, still, just be cautious how fast uh, of a shutter speed you use if you're using these in a photography format. Uh, they do work fine for video, though. Devin, you have anything to add to that besides my uh, yeah, random ones?
1: Yeah. For one thing, uh, the Elsos, you know, they actually tell you they got a CRI of 91, which isn't terrible. Uh, remember, that's pretty much what Kino Flows and everything have been doing, and people have been, you know, in love with that. I know right now the Rage is all, you know, 95 plus for LED fixtures. Uh, but uh, anything past 90 is still really usable, and, you know, maybe you got to put a gel on it, a light gel. Maybe you have to touch it a bit in post, but it's still... Um, you know, for, you know, 25 bucks a bulb or something like that, I don't consider that terrible because these CFLs do last a pretty long time. Um, but then, you know, like compared to the reverse, which is like, if you're going with, uh, halogen or something like that, you've got a small, like 300 watt RE fixture with the heat, uh, the short bulb life and everything else. You can buy bulbs by like the 20 pack, uh, when you go uh, into that, but you got to deal with the wattage, you got to deal with the heat and everything else. So... Uh, and I still recommend CFLs for a lot of people. I know even though I use LEDs a lot now because I'm usually out on mobile, I want something that's battery powered. Uh, when it comes to setting up a studio, I pretty much go back to Kino Flows or other uh, fluorescent fixtures because of how cheap they are. And they still last for a super long time. Um, and you still, you know, are low on power and you're low on heat issues. So. Uh, Also, keep in mind, too, that your fixture can determine how much light output you get. I forget. I I don't know if it was Alzo. Somebody posted a video where they're measuring the light output of different uh, of these spiral fluorescent bulbs, depending on what angle they're at. And there is optimal angle for these uh, bulbs. And some fixtures are at that optimal angle and some other ones aren't. Um, but that's something to keep in mind.
0: Here's one I'm pretty happy with, and I I have a ton of these light boxes in my collection. Uh, Linko, they make really good light stands, and these floral pattern... uh, fixtures are really nice as well. If you break them open, a lot of the cheaper fixtures will have uh, really light gauge wiring. We're talking like number 16 wiring that uh, <laughs> uh, can burn up very easily or start a fire in your studio. Uh, these are rocking a uh, number 12 wire, which is quite a bit thicker, rated for a higher ampacity, and it allows for up to uh, six bulbs in a single head. And the cool thing about the Linko floral lights is that they have this hexagon shape shaped uh, head here uh, and I ha- I've, it's a double-sided sword they're really easy to set up and they're really nice uh, they open up really well and they lock into place and they do a good job the only issue I've had with them and I've sent them back in for replacement multiple times is, is see this little piece of plastic right here Devin yeah this thing after time especially if you have higher output bulbs in there if they they're on for weeks and weeks uh, the plastic in that particular piece will eventually get brittle and break and when it breaks, there's nothing you can do about it. You know, they're done. Mm-hmm. That's the main uh, opening feature. That's what feature. holds it together, yeah. Exactly. So once that's busted, you can maybe super glue it if you're lucky or, you know, drill a hole through it and permanently attach it. But otherwise, uh, that's the weakest point on this. And I would have liked to seen this upgraded to some kind of metal format or something a little bit better than that.
1: Well, if you- or if even just, uh, you know, uh, a better mixture of ABS probably would handle the temperature better.
0: Yeah. And the problem is, if you look at the design of this floral pattern here, the connection piece goes into this hole and then is tightened on with this little nut right here on the side. And all the heat for all of these is sort of concentrated right around this plastic port right here. And there isn't a ton of ventilation on that. So because of that, Uh, this thing heats up and this is made out of really good plastic. So it's nice and solid and uh, the bases are all porcelain. So they absorb well, but uh, the plastic piece that hooks into this spot right here is a weak spot in their design. So that's my only complaint. Otherwise really good lights. And if you look on eBay or Amazon, occasionally uh, Linko runs sales on their lighting kits and that includes bulbs and everything. And they're you know, they're a pretty good deal, really nice lights, plenty of light output, and if you're looking to sort of up your game in the studio, again, even for photography, as long as you're aware of your shutter speed, uh, CFLs aren't a bad investment. Absolutely. All right, uh, let's see, what else do we have in here, Devin, before we get out of here? I've got, uh, do you even care about the uh, Panasonic CM10 uh, no. camera in a phone? No, alright I just, I'm gonna. I...
1: I wish that Samsung would do something like this because I doubt that this phone is going to be any good. They're announcing a new one tomorrow, uh, which I don't know if they'll make huge improvements, but I want a phone with software that works and processors that are fast and things I don't have to wait around on. And I don't mind my phone being a little bit bulkier. uh, If you can, you know, put a, bigger lens in it and uh, better battery life. And I know I may be, you know, one of the few that is actually okay with having a thicker phone, but to me, these are all still really skinny phones. And to, to have like really good point and shoot quality, uh, you know, cause that's basically what I use my phone for now. So it would be great to have that maybe in a different market. Cause I don't know. I look at Lumix and I'm like any phone that you make, unless you're partnering with somebody, is probably not going to be that great and it's probably not going to be supported or updated as their last version really didn't have any updates i think past 4.4 4. yeah so, i think you had
0: to go to the rooted market in order to yeah. get anything and the cm if you're not familiar with this particular camera and phone we were going to talk about it now we're talking about it uh the yeah. cm1 was the original it was the first one to basically add a super zoom lens to the f- smartphone itself with some specialty panasonic app to run over the top of android and in order to give you like sort of standard photography tools to take pictures it supported uh, raw dng files and 4k recording the new one is going to be similar i think they've upgraded the optics uh, they're they're upgrading the android build on this uh, i think to five 5.1 as opposed to what was this was this 4.4
1: I think it was four four yeah.
0: four four Yeah, so uh, it's kind of cool. And the old one, the CM1, did get a price drop. It went from $1,000 down to $499. So if you're into that, the issue I actually have, I might have even bought one if uh, they had support for, I don't know, Verizon. Because guess what? In the United States, Verizon is everywhere. I am yeah. not getting on to Boost Mobile or AT&T or one of the other subpar carriers when... I have Verizon for life. And don't get me wrong. I think Verizon's a horrible corporation that does awful <laughs> stuff all the time. But this guy right here is an unlimited data guy who uses upwards of 90 to 100 gigs a month, depending and, on where I'm at, because I just tether the crap out of stuff all the time. And, and, and I Verizon,
1: Verizon is fast and their 4G is everywhere. It's still the most impressive 4G network to date. Are you, Some of the places I end up
0: having to work You know, I need to get a file or or something off of the network. And I plug into the local LAN there and and get online. And I'm getting maybe like 7 megs down, 6 megs down at best. And I plug my phone into my laptop, turn it on, and I'm getting 16 to 20 down. And that is ridiculous. (laughs) That is ridiculous. Um, Plus the upload speeds. And a lot of these remote locations that I end up working, I get, you know, maybe a a meg, 2 meg up. On my cell phone, I'm getting five to seven megs up. It is ridiculous how much up bandwidth you get out of a cell phone. I don't know. I mean, I guess I do know why that is, but it's just <laughs> really nice to be able to use a cell phone for uploads to speed things up. If you are on a very slow network. Now, one last question here, I'm going to throw in before we get out of one here. One
1: last question.
0: Yeah, this one's for you, right. Devin. Okay, uh, that's for me. let me see. Where was it? Uh, thinking of buying a set of Cine Primes to get better glass on my BMPCC. Uh, would you go with Cine Primes or Cine Zooms? And what would you recommend? This is from Kyle. Oh my
1: goodness. Um, um you know what you can't you can't get wide enough uh with that 3x crop you're going to have trouble as weird as it sounds shooting indoors just because what about those uh, vidra lenses the uh, didn't they have like a 12 or an 8 mm millimeter yeah and what at like f2.2 f- no i thought it was like higher than that like f4 maybe uh, I'm wrong. yeah i think you're right it is f4 um, on there Widest. Uh, so the, the Rokinon has a couple of really fast lenses and I've seen a lot of people use them. Uh, I think they've got an eight millimeter that is below 3.5. Not totally sure on that. Don't quote me, but, uh, I would just go with the standard primes cause they're going to be faster. I'm not sure you're going to find a zoom that's super wide. Actually, uh, if you were interested in buying a zoom, I would consider the one that DJ's got, which is a seven to 12 millimeter F 2.8. Am I oh, right? Oh the Olympus, Olympus
0: seven to fourteen millimeter
1: Seven to fourteen. Yeah, yeah, that
0: is sexy, but it's very spendy. Uh, it is
1: it is very spendy, but it's eleven like
0: hundred dollars, I think.
1: Uh like in most cases you're never gonna go past fifty millimeters because your fifty millimeters is a one fifty on that lens. Uh it's super zoomed in. Um Matter of fact, you know that'd be a great thing for what we were talking about before. Trying to turn a camera into a telescope with a bunch of two X adapters, the Blackmagic three X crap would work great for that. But um, it's there's two ways to go about it. I see is that man that thing's big. Yeah. Uh,
0: so for the video viewers, here's the Olympus seven to fourteen, and here's the Panasonic seven to fourteen, and you can just see how the- massive. The Olympus are... weighing
1: in at, you know, two pounds. Yeah, and this is uh, not
0: just me awkwardly holding them. They This thing is literally twice the size. But
1: the Olympus also has a great focus ring. That 7 to 14 means you're going to have, you know, a 21 to, um, you know, 40-ish or whatever. I can't do that math. Um, and 21 is going to be wide enough that you can use it indoors for the most part. Um, and it's going to give you some flexibility and some range. Otherwise, um the fact that it doesn't do low light either, uh, you really don't want to get anything that's at, above 2.8 if you can. If, if you can. I mean, like if, if you're like, this is your first camera and you don't have any lenses and you don't have money, you can go out and get C-mount lenses like crazy. You can get a 25, a 50 millimeter that are all F1.8 for like 20 bucks, 30 bucks.
0: That How's the vignetting uh, though on those C-mounts? Is, does it cover enough of the sensor to, to yeah. fully take care of it?
1: Because it's, it's built for 16mm. are 16mm lenses on a 16mm camera. It's when you put them on a GH3 uh, that you start to get vignetting, a GH3 or a GH4, because that 2x crop isn't enough. But with the 3x crop on most of them, uh, you can see reviews where people have used them. You're going to get coverage, and those things cost nothing. So you can get a couple of primes, uh, for next to nothing, if you've like, I only got 50 bucks or 100 bucks. If you're actually like, you know, gonna spend a lot of money and you're gonna try to invest, uh, the Olympus just gives you that advantage of working with different stuff. Otherwise, your other option is to go with a speed booster in order to get fast and wide. Um, and I would kind of, it depends on your shooting. Like, you can't ask me if you want primes or uh, a zoom because that really depends on if you need a Zoom. If you're going to be making short films with your friends and stuff like that, the primes are cheaper, they're nice and sharp, and they tend to be a bit faster than any Zoom you're going to find. So go with the primes. You can get Rokinons. Heck, get, you know, a Nikon or Canon Rokinon. Get a speed booster for 150 bucks and, uh, you know, throw it onto the Black Magic, and that way you'll get it a little wider and a little faster. Um, but if you're like, oh, I'm going to be kind of like shooting events and stuff like that, I, you know, I'm going to be... Uh, You know moving around a lot and needing to get lots of different angles on the fly then you need a zoom So it really depends on your shooting situation not and partially the kind of look you want not necessarily like which is better It depends on what you're shooting. So those are the two options It's like you can either spend a thousand on a zoom that kind of gets you a lot of range when you consider the 3x crop Is you kind of get wide to standard on a 2.8 which is really nice with a good focus ring and everything else or you can go uh the rokinon route with adapters and you can get an eight millimeter on there uh as well as they've got a i think they've got like a 14 they've got a you know a 12 or something like that there's a few in there that are pretty affordable you know they're maybe 350 400 around that price range um and i would recommend getting those in a nikon mount or a canon mount uh, and then using some 15 dollar passive adapter to put it onto your black magic or spend the money to get a speed booster, and then that way they're even faster and even wider. Because with that speed booster, you're going to kind of take each lens and get two focal lengths out of it, as well as two speeds. So it, it kind of gives you more options to play around with. But once again, if you're kind of running around a lot, shooting a lot of crazy stuff, doing documentary work or something like that, you're going to want the zoom. If you want... Um, uh, you know, if, if you're going to be making f- short films and stuff like that, then go with the primes cause they're going to be cheaper. You're probably going to like the way they look better and that shallow depth of field. You're going to, is going to be more important to you than the convenience of having a zoom. So depends on your workflow, but I think those are the kind of the two options you'll want to look at with something, you know, that small of a sensor size.
0: Now I got a question for you, Devin, and this is kind of off topic. Not really a little bit.
1: Yes. Okay. Okay.
0: Let me shoot. This is hot or not. The new Kodak film camera, hot or not? No,
1: I don't think it's worth it. The eight millimeter film with the audio and everything. Um, it, I don't know, I don't want to say it's gimmicky because, yeah, I love film and everything else, but I think really that it's just too costly like uh, 50 bucks for a couple of minutes of uh footage. Uh, not that that's like unreasonable. Everyone needs to understand that. that's a good price for, uh, how much it costs to develop. Uh, but, and then them sending you 4k files, which I think is a little bit outrageous because I doubt you're really going gonna... to be 4k renders from eight uh, millimeter film. That's, that's what they made it sound like. Like it's, I don't think that that made resolution confirmed. in eight there millimeters? Isn't. You you would be fine with 1080. You'd probably be fine with 720. I doubt you could really see the difference between 720 and 1080, considering how large the grain size would be on an eight millimeter. But still, um, I don't see where it's going to be incredibly useful. I don't. It, it doesn't fit into professional productions at all. It's not built that way. You can tell by the way, like the microphones, just a 3.5 millimeter jack and everything else. This isn't like a digital bolex where they're like, we're kind of making this. For you know hobbyists, as well as making this for you know professionals, possibly this eight and millimeter thing, yeah <laughs> this eight millimeter thing is purely for hobbyists and if you 've never shot in film before and you kind of want to hold in your hand and just go through that experience it's a very low buy and what I really see it being useful for is um uh like high schools. Uh, uh, Smaller film programs, you know, that don't have money to get a lot of equipment. This is a very cheap camera. And then, you know, students, uh, students, parents really can buy, you know, the cartridges to make this work. And then they can edit it and they've got a copy of the film and they can, you know, talk about how cool film is and everything else. Uh, But it's one of those where while so many people have complained about, you know, film and 70 millimeter and everything else and how it's so dang important uh, to me, it's never been a make or break on a story. Uh, I, I've, I've seen really well-told stories on digital uh, that move me, that make me think, uh, that are just fantastic stories. And I don't think them being on film would have made them any better. Uh, it, it's one of those small minutiae things that, like, DPs are really into, and maybe on some level it affects us. But uh, cons- and, and understand too, I'm coming from someplace younger. I'm sure if I was, uh, you know, 50 years old, I'd have a completely different argument for this. Uh, but considering that, you know, I'm in my twenties, uh, most of the stuff I grew up on is, uh, digital, uh, though, you know, my favorite like movie of all time is Top Gun. Look at the film grain in that thing. It looks like it was shot on 16 millimeter. Geez. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, if all my old favorites and I, I watch Chinatown and stuff like that, if that was shot on digital, it still would be a fantastic story and it would still be something I'd watch again and again. Other people have a different opinion about this, but for me, it's not, it's, it's great to have and I, I wouldn't want to take it from anybody, but it's not something that, I think is crucial for storytelling. I think there's so many more elements and so much more things that are crucial for that film look and storytelling and making people think or feel and uh, getting them involved with your story. And I just feel like just throwing it on film doesn't do anything in terms of bringing your audience into your story.
0: Now, I do have one thing, and this is an interesting point that I'll credit one of my coworkers with bringing up. We were discussing the Kodak camera after I did the show with Mitch, and I was asking him, like, well, what do you think about it? And you know, the first thing he said is, he asked me, like, what's your regular uh, shooting ratio? I said, I don't know, like seven or ten to one, probably. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes worse if I'm just like, I want every shot ever because I got time for it. He's like, exactly. He's like, now think about if you're shooting on film, what would your ratio be? Like maybe like two to one or three to one at the worst, because you don't have much film to deal with. And I was thinking about that. I'm like, you know what? This would be really good to force, like, especially in a a learning media environment, like uh, in high school or even early college uh, film courses, if you actually had to deal with raw film and like three minutes worth of footage at a time and waiting for turnaround, you would really start to think about every single shot and make sure that it was set up completely perfectly before you filmed it and that you had your actors run through their lines a bunch of times, did everything correctly in order to get it perfect each time. I was just looking at one of my edits uh, this week, and after he told me that, I'm like, wait a minute, I wonder how many of these takes I did before I actually kept one of these, and it was 15. 15 freaking shots yeah. of the exact same thing before I got a take that I liked. And you know what? I didn't even I didn't think twice about it because media is disposable and the number of takes yeah. are disposable. And I, I mean, I've mentioned before on the show, I always go to the last take in a scene and look at that because I, I generally that's the one I liked when I was shooting it. So that's the one I'm going to edit with. And I don't even think about how much wasted footage I shoot because it's incidental. It doesn't matter. But with film... Thinking about every shot and really focusing on every shot, I think that could actually help uh, new filmmakers get better faster simply because they really have to put forth all the effort in order to get it to look good with the most minimum amount of footage possible. And yeah. Devin, do you think I'm crazy? Or?
1: No, no, no. I think that's absolutely an excellent point. And that's kind of why I was targeting it towards film schools uh, because... Uh, it, it is a very low price and a very low buy-in to get people interested in film and to really think critically about it. And you're absolutely right. Uh, there was some kind of um, inspiring, uh, I want to say, I don't know, director, producer, something like that, who you know travels the country giving speeches about filmmaking or something like that. Uh, but he brought up, uh, you know, a way to like take 20 grand and make like a Dolby digital 35 millimeter production, which this was probably 15 years ago. So I don't even know if the prices would be the same, but uh, he, he expressed like, for one thing, like, you know, you're basically going to do a stage play. You're going to do it on a stage and you're going to sit there with your cast and crew and you're going to rehearse the entire thing because you're not going to do a second cut. And I thought about, how crazy of a process that would be, but it'd be so interesting to see the results of like th- doing everything as kind of one take. And when the film, you know, runs out, that's when you cut and you load a new piece of film in, and then you pick up right where you left off and you keep recording like that so that you don't have... You're not wasting any film so that you can take all your uh, you, the tails and the ends and stuff like that that you buy up super cheap and make use out of them. So I thought about that as a process of spending a week with your cast and crew rehearsing your five-minute, eight-minute short film or whatever like that and really getting everything nailed down and then shooting it. Um, you know, some people may say you lose the you know, the magic of acting, you know, by over-rehearsing or something like that. And I'm sure some directors would be like, no, you can absolutely get perfection if you work that hard at something. So a lot of interesting viewpoints, you know, there's, you know, more than one way to skin a cat, but... Uh, It it kind of brings me back to that mindset of like, you know, if you were to shoot this, yeah, you'd have to really focus, make sure that you got everything right. It would really make you stop before you hit record and check your frame, which a lot of people don't do. Check the frame. Like, are there cables? Is there a boom pole? Does it look like there's a light post growing out of somebody's head? Like, actually checking your frame to be like, is this really a good shot? And I think that could really help uh, cinematographers and storytellers. Uh, you're right, to like pause and think about it because they have so little footage in order to work with. So you're right. I think a lot of uh, some of these guys are really spoiled by the fact that they can shoot anything and throw it away. Uh, it's kind of the same way when 4K came along. Every I know a lot of people started shooting wide and they're like, oh, I'll crop it and figure out my framing later. And I'm like... What? No! You should like be placing everything exactly where you want it and establishing your framing, and you know then shoot with four K. So I'm guilty um, of that,
0: man. <laughs> I'm so guilty of that. It's just like, oh, I need to shoot an interview. You know what? I'm just gonna shoot this all wide, and then I'll I'll crop in to get the close up, and I'll pop back out to get the expanded. That's sort of an awful way to shoot. Don't do that if you're. <laughs> If you're a filmmaker, that's lazy filmmaking work. And I only let that slide when I'm doing like corporate interviews and no one cares. But if you start looking at the frame, you can tell, especially if you're shooting on a, a really wide lens, when you cut to the corner, you can sort of see the softness and the yeah. vignetting and, and some of the other issues. And it's not even across the screen. So it gives you some sort of weird results. It's not the best way to film. Don't do that.
1: No, absolutely not. The The lenses are kind of built to be shot in one way. And when you start cherry picking pieces out of your lens uh you you end up with weird stuff and it's it's weird but i can almost always tell a film not always but i I can most of the time tell a film when they shot it in 4k and then they just decided to choose their uh composition their uh cropping later because something about it I never I feel like it it, then it always feels I can't say digitally zoomed in because it's like the quality is there and everything else you'd expect is there, uh, but it always feels kind of like a telephoto lens. Nothing feels big and has space and grandeur. Everything always feels like a little too tight and everything feels really flat. Uh, because well, a great example
0: is actually, uh, the ghostbusters. Remember that was shot in Panavision. And then when right. it went to VHS, they had to do those like crazy pan and scan things yeah. where like, Bill Murray's walking to someone else or walking next to someone else. And it was framed for a certain type of lens. So they actually have to just digitally yeah. zoom across the image to get to the person that he's talking to. Otherwise they're cut out.
1: Right. And so there's, yeah. And so you, you can, you can kind of tell when like, ah, oh, this isn't what the, you know, uh person originally intended. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't buy it because it's expensive, uh, but I would, I don't know. If, if I was in film school, I probably would love to try it out.
0: Now, last uh, film thing that I wanted to post here real quick is just uh, this camera, the Logmar. This is an A $5,000 8mm film camera that was also released uh, in 2015. Um, This one has top-notch features. They have added syncing. They've added uh, audio slate. They've added all kinds of really good stuff to this, including firmware upgrades, uh, Wi-Fi remote control, uh, near-field communication, full phantom power for your XLR inputs on this guy. (laughs) It's pretty sexy. Um it's still a film camera mm-hmm. but uh man you know if you really really had to shoot uh in 8mm eight, eight i guess uh, the the yeah. other question i guess with this um this sort of renaissance of that sort of like old analog technology you know wouldn't you just want to go to ebay and buy a ARI 16mm camera or yeah, you know because i mean
1: well, Some well, of those are
0: like five, four or $500, and you can right. just go get them.
1: Right. And I think the reason why is because 16 millimeter is super expensive. Is super expensive. And you got to develop it. And developing it is even more expensive. Uh, but you're right. Those old film cameras, they're mechanical. Like, they still work. You give them power, a motor moves. And as long as that one motor moves, mechanically the rest of it, as long as it's oiled and isn't rusted, uh, it all operates as well. Uh, and it is fascinating that early part of film of like the projector literally being a camera in reverse uh, and being able to kind of use the two interchangeably. Uh, no, I think if you're really interested in it, too, and you were really serious about doing film, you're one of those guys. that's like, oh, my thing needs to be in film, uh, which makes me think of that uh, that show recently, um, a project Greenlight, where the guy really wanted it shot on film. Uh, and they said, we can give you two more days of production or we can give you film. And he said, I'll take film. And then after his film was done, you could kind of tell no one said it, but you could kind of tell he really wishes he had two extra days to fix everything that didn't go right the first time. (laughs) Um, and, and I, and then I saw his film on HBO and I don't know if it's the way they colored it or HBO or whatever, but to me it didn't look like film. It could have been a digital 16 by nine video, uh, for all I know, because modern film doesn't have a whole lot of grain in it if you don't want it to. Um, but in any case, yeah, 16 millimeter, buying an old camera, getting the film, and then developing it and everything else. I feel like 16 is the way to go because I feel like even with modern processing, 8 millimeter is still going to have a lot of grain and a lot of noise. And that's kind of why I feel like 8 millimeter was mostly... A home video format for people who you know wanted to do home videos as opposed to like 16 was like kind of a proper format I would kind of consider 16 a lot of people like to put like numbers and resolutions on these things but you can't it's kind of like saying there's a resolution for the human eye it's organic it doesn't work in that way and it's not you know even spectrum either so it's like not really something you can quantify but Um, I I would say like 16 millimeters, like kind of like 720p, 1080. You're getting in that area where you're getting like really great detail. Um, eight millimeter, I kind of feel like from what I've seen, and maybe they've they've made huge improvements, and I haven't seen good eight millimeter in a long time. But a lot of eight millimeter reels I've seen kind of look like standard def. Not that that's awful. Not that that can't tell a story. Uh, it certainly can, and it has. But just we're moving backwards in quality. Yeah, it's just you're you're taking a huge step back in quality. Uh, and so that might get in the way of your storytelling if your audience is expecting slightly more quality where I feel like 16 millimeter, you know, with style and everything you could really get away with and really make something that looks great without having to spend the outrageous millions of dollars in order to do 32. So
0: I kind of think of, uh, eight millimeter in terms of photography as like, uh, remember 110 film, The like, <laughs> no, it's the, it had two like, um, two little sort of weight-looking circles on either side with a little hoop in the middle, and it was the really cheap 110 cameras. Oh, no?
1: you, you mean the super long cameras? That no, no, the, okay, no, hold on. Okay. Let me
0: let me bring up yeah, a picture why don't you here.
1: Find, like, we got the internet in front of us, man. It's, this you know, right magic. here
0: is a 110 Yeah, that's roll. what I'm
1: talking about. Yeah, I used to shoot that, yeah.
0: Yeah, and the, uh, the cameras, like a lot of them look like these little sticks. Yeah,
1: absolutely. That's what I was talking about, the really long cameras. Yes, uh, I had one of those when I was a child, and I took pictures like crazy on it because I didn't under have a concept of money. Yeah, so, I, but I, I grew so up I grew up actually using those to like take pictures of my Lego creations and stuff like that because I was a lonely kid.
0: I had a spy <laughs> camera when I was a child that, that used uh, that kind of film. Yeah, the camera was set up so that the the film actually was basically outside of the camera, and uh, the the camera portion was like this little square that hooked onto the middle of it. So it was and a small a little pinhole good, camera. As, yeah, exactly, and it was as small as you could possibly make a film camera for 110 film, and you just push the button on top, and it like took a picture, and hopefully something turned out. You had no idea what it was taking a picture of. I, am, right. I don't even you, know, you what know what the focal length was for those. You know
1: what I always wanted that used 110, uh, and I never got, and I'm spiteful about it to this day, was um, uh, they the Estes used to sell a model rocket that would take 110 film. And so after the rocket would reach the height of its trajectory and it would blow the parachute the nose cone would have a lens on it facing forward and when the parachute pulls it would pull a trigger inside the nose cone which would jerk it so it shoots the ground and also then expose a piece of film. And so I always wanted one of those because I, I just love the idea of launching something way high into the sky and then having it take a picture. I mean, now we got drones. It's ridiculous with the you know, toys kids have now. But um, that to me, that was like, oh, I wanted that so bad. And I remember, too, that uh, I really wanted to make a model aircraft that had a small point-and-shoot, Kodak point-and-shoot, you put inside the body. And then with a trigger, you would remotely click uh, the shutter on the, uh, the point and shoot camera and then, you know, take it in and develop it. But I never got any of those toys. Uh, you know, I just had to, uh, work with my, um, what, what's it called? Cinderella, uh, editing software <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, watch my cartoons. So here's that spy camera I was talking about. This one has a little, puppy Oh dude, that's funny. It's got They're a Yeah keychain and everything. Yeah, key and everything. <laughs>
0: yeah. I was rocking it hard. Hardcore. All right. Yeah. I think that's enough. We've gone off the rails here. Oh yes, Devin, exactly. do you have anything else you want to cover before we get out of here?
1: Um, hey, uh, Pelican makes really small cases that are cheap. They're like 10 bucks. I'm What's not a spokesperson for? for Pelican, but I'm holding up an example of a 1010, which is like the smallest case they make. Okay. Uh, and right now I use it for uh, holding uh, one of my lav mics because uh, with a case this hard... I never have to worry about my mics uh, banging around or, like, be- becoming broken or something like that uh, because this thing will handle a car running over it. It's waterproof. It has a pressure release valve, too, because it's waterproof. Um, but uh, a lot of people think of Pelican has big, fancy, expensive cases. No, they also make really small, inexpensive cases. I think 10 bucks for this is really reasonable. And you can even fill it with foam for a couple more bucks and pick and place and do all that kind of stuff. So uh, just something I I picked up a couple of them recently and I've been, you know, loving them. And it's not like it's anything new, but just a reminder that, uh, you know, there's cheap ways to organize your stuff.
0: Hey, stick a link to that in the show notes. Uh, I use this and this is just a really cheap generic thing that I got at the dollar store, I think, or, you know, maybe Walmart. And it's meant to hold like fishing tackles. You know, so right. Yeah. it's not really that great. It's got like some compartments and whatnot, and you're supposed to put like lures and whatever in there. And instead uh, I've shoved my lav mics in there and keep my foams on the other side. It works. Okay. Um, actually your solution is much more elegant than mine. So <laughs> well, I might I, be following you down I, that road. I tell
1: you what, because, um, uh, cause I, I used to do soft cases for a while uh, for a lot of lavs and stuff like that. And, uh, what I decided on was like, Hey, Um, it's so much easier, uh, just generally speaking, it's so much easier to um, uh, have a hard case because uh, when I put stuff in it, I, I don't know. I can open up a hard case and it holds everything. It doesn't flop open or it's not like a zipper pouch where it's kind of buried and I have to find stuff. It's just one of those things that with the snap open and snap shut, I find it to be really easy for me to pull out of my bag, snap it open, arrange whatever I need to inside of it, pull it out, put it on somebody, snap it close. So it's just, it's one of those that I've become a huge fan of. The Rode uh, lav mic, if you buy it by itself. Um, it doesn't come in the filmmaker kit, but if you buy the mic by itself, uh, it actually comes with a slightly smaller version of that kind of case that I don't currently have in front of me, but, uh, which I really like. I think it's a little small for all the accessories they give you if you want to keep them around, uh, but it comes with one of those, and I think it's a great way of keeping laws safe.
0: Oh, man, I, sorry, I got lost looking at the uh, the spy cameras for one <laughs> <laughs> All right, on that note, guys, uh, Devin, where can people find you?
1: You can find me on Twitter at DevoCut.
0: And, of course, guys, you can find me at DSLR Film Noob on Twitter. You can find it at DSLRFilmNoob.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and anywhere those things are distributed. Be sure to like, review, write in, and post your questions on YouTube, and we'll start using them in the show because it kind of sparks some fun discussion. Devin and I have used all kinds of gear over the years, so we love to talk about some of that stuff that has failed, has not failed, and we've enjoyed using. On that note, guys, you'll find this show posted shortly i'm sorry i was slow last week to getting the audio up for the audio listeners i will get on top of that this week uh you thank you thank you thank you for and thank subscribing you. and we'll see you next time on another exciting episode of dslr film noob
1: podcast i
0: have no idea where i was going with that ending
1: <laughs> i think that ending went everywhere <laughs> it did. look at this spy cam man it's
0: adorable i
1: don't